and thank you for joining us. This is From the Newsroom, the weekly podcast presented by the Holland Sentinel staff. I'm Brian Burnells, Digital Director, and I'm joined by reporter Arpan Lobo. Hey, Brian. Hi, Arpan. And Managing Editor Audra Gamble. Hey, Brian. Hello, Audra. And tonight we're going to uh, talk, discuss about, uh, let me think, Wednesdays. <laughs> My days are blurring together. Wednesdays, uh, Democratic Debate. This was number three, number five, actually. Holy cow. I'm, wow. I couldn't believe it. Really, number five. Everything's kind of blending together. Okay. Are you sure it wasn't the fourth? Maybe. <laughs> it's not sure. number three. Right. It's not number okay, three. Okay, it's not number three. It might be four. It might a, be five. Any number of debates. Yes. This is one Depend- of several. Depending <laughs> on who you ask, because sometimes we have two debates yes. and two nights. Oh, and yeah, do those count as true. one, or are yeah. they two separate debates? You never know. Uh, Arpan, you you hung in there and watched all what two hours of it? Yes. Audra, you watched two hours of I it. I did kinda, indeed. You I did was watch there for all the long time. haul. Yeah. Okay. I uh, wanted to get your thoughts about it. Um, who stood out? Who's kind of fading? What were the big issues discussed? Are we starting to see a clearer candidate emerge on the horizon? What were you guys' thoughts? Well, I think this was the first time that that we had kind of someone else in that center stage position. Uh, Previously, we had had uh, Vice President Joe Biden and then also Senator Elizabeth Warren, kind of sort of Bernie Sanders in the mix there too. But uh, because of some recent polling that had come out, uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg was really the the front runner in terms of who was fielding the most attacks from other candidates la- uh, yeah, last night. And that was really the first time that he had, had been in the hot seat for that amount of time in any one debate. It, it was kind of uh, different in the sense that this was a debate, but it stuck out more like a forum in, term- in terms of candidates not really going after each other. The exception was Pete Buttigieg. He fielded attacks from all different sides. Uh, for different things like his experience, uh, his policy, and certain things he said to the media and uh, certain uh, things that his campaign have put out uh, that really came under fire for. And and like Audra mentioned, the reason behind this was because he's polling very well in Iowa. There are polls that have him as the front runner in Iowa, which is the uh, uh, the first Democratic caucus. Right. And so he spent a lot of time on the defensive while other candidates were just talking about their experience and their plans. But I don't necessarily think that he felt uncomfortable there or appeared to flounder. I mean, for, for the most part throughout the night, he held his own and, and there were a couple of very heated exchanges. The one that, that really stuck out to me was the one between um, Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard. The two of them are, are the ones on the the stage that are, um, you know, they're military veterans. They're both fairly young. Uh, they're not necessarily the most experienced individuals on that stage in terms of, um, you know, time in, in public office, though, you know, they, they both are currently so. They just are younger than some of the other individuals. Um, and they really kind of went after each other on, on some foreign policy ideas that um, got got pretty dicey and they, and they really didn't uh, hold anything back. And, and I think we're going to start to see that more uh, as we get closer and candidates are, are kind of feeling that 
pressure of, you know, if I, if I don't have a good showing in, in Iowa and New Hampshire and, and moving forward, it's going to be very hard for, for me to get the momentum that I need to stay in this race. It was a pretty testy uh, exchange between uh, Mayor Pete and, and Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, it was over. Uh, Buttigieg told media, I think it was last week or not, not too long ago, that America would help Mexico with its cartel problem. And that could involve uh, potential troop support. And Tulsi Gabbard attacked that point. And then Pete Buttigieg came back and said, do you really think I would invade Mexico? And then she was like, oh, that's not what I meant. That's not what I said. <laughs> it, it was a very uh, kind of testy moment. And it drew a lot of reaction from the crowd and the other candidates. Yeah, but but his response was also, he really shot back and said, you know, I don't really need, you know, advice on on leadership and and you know, strength of character. I was also in the military and, you know, I have these traits and he, he hammered quite a few times last night. He said, uh, you know, Washington experience is not the only kind of experience that's valid. And, and that's been a, a complaint from some of the other candidates that, you know, here's this kind of up and coming guy from a smallish Midwest town. And, you know, what does he know about doing things on large scale or, or, with any sort of, you know, national authority. And, and he kept saying, well, yes, South Bend is, you know, not not New York City, not the United States, but it is still a, a position that, you know, mattered to the community. And, and he deals with difficult issues. Now, whether he has dealt with them well is a different question. But um, I thought that was something that he really kind of kept going back to throughout the night that, you know, just because I haven't been in Washington, D.C. doesn't mean, you know, my thoughts are invalid was kind of his response quite a few times. I thought Amy Klobuchar, uh, who's someone that I've kind of ripped into for why are you running for president? Because I didn't think she was doing all that well. But I thought she brought up a good point <laughs> last previous night. previous podcast. <laughs> uh, yes, those are all there. But uh, I thought she brought up a good point where someone like Pete Buttigieg isn't really being judged on his experience by national media. He's kind of being judged on promise. She raised the point that when women run for president, they are they do not get that benefit of the doubt. They have to tout all their experiences. And if anything comes up as maybe a red flag, they have to defend it and explain it rigorously. And so I thought that was an interesting uh, in- interesting kind of point from, from Senator Klobuchar. And she also made it a point to kind of say, you know, Yes. Okay. You you you're doing very well in terms of popularity in South Bend, but you know this is different. I, I thought that was an interesting moment. On the flip side, you look at the GOP uh, and Trump running on the whole fact that uh, I don't have experience in Washington. That's a good thing, <laughs> and people bought into it and said, "Oh, he's going to drain the swamp." Then. Whereas, uh, uh, you know, last night they're hammering this poor guy for not having enough experience. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it really shows, you know, we've, we've talked about in, in previous debates, and I've kind of railed against Cory Becker for, for his kumbaya moments of everyone, let's all be together so we yeah. can defeat Donald Trump. And, and I, I mean, yes, it, it's kind of funny when in the midst of, you know, everyone shouting at each other, he'd pulls his like Mr. Rogers act, but, um, you know, as they do inch closer to these actual moments where Americans will cast ballots and caucus, 
I, I did kind of see a, a shift from some of the, now this may be because the moderators were um, Washington Post and MSNBC last night, but a lot of the questions in previous debates have gotten some flack for, well, th- these are Democrats. Why are you asking them really questions about Trump or mm-hmm. or yeah. you know Republican policies? As if they're from a Republican standpoint, right? Right. right. Um, and last night I didn't see as much of that. Um, there were a lot of moments where you were really trying to get at very specific details of differences in policy from candidate to candidate, which I think you know potential Democratic voters in primaries that's the kind of distinction that they're looking for at the moment. Rather, I mean, everybody on the stage is against Donald Trump. Everybody on the stage, you know, stands mm, for yeah. XYZ Democratic right. stances. Right. When there's still quite a few people on that stage, those nuances are are going to be the important things for undecided voters. Right, right. I, I think that's a very good point because you shouldn't be thinking about moderators during a debate of candidates. And last night was really the first time that when I heard a question, I thought about the question itself and not how it was framed. And so I thought that was a positive development just in terms of how these uh, debates are going. And I hope that continues going forward. You brought up uh, Cory Booker, who is – his campaign's almost kind of on the ropes now. He – during his closing statement, he kind of urged – he told everybody, I won't, at this current moment, I'm not qualifying for the December debate and I need you to help me out and uh, remember – to qualify for these debates, you have to be polling in a certain way, and you have to have a certain amount of unique donations from different states. It's 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 a multifaceted kind of qualification system. So he kind of made that appeal there. I thought on stage he did pretty well. There were several times where he was the one uh, in a previous debate, you know, with that kumbaya moment you alluded to, and he did a good job. I thought last night uh, because we're recording this on Thursday. I thought he did a good job of throwing shade without actually attacking anybody. He brought up the points of we need a candidate that can get the African-American population to come out and vote. Uh, Kind of looking at Pete Buttigieg, who's currently polling at 0% among black voters. In South Carolina. In in South Carolina. That is a a key stipulation. But nationally, it's not as if he's doing that well either. He brought up Joe Biden's kind of track record on marijuana legalization. Ooh, yeah, that was an interesting moment. He, yeah. he, he joked that when when Joe Biden said that he didn't think marijuana should be legal, and this is during his campaign, this isn't a Vice President Biden or Senator Biden standpoint, uh, he joked that, oh, Mr. Vice President, you must have been high when you said that. Um, yeah, that definitely got a crowd reaction. Because he, he did yeah. bring the, the point up, and in Michigan, not in the Holland area, um, but you can in Michigan, some spots starting next month, you'll be able to go buy uh, recreational weed um, if you're over the age of 21. And he mentioned the point that marijuana is already legal for those with the for, for the privileged population. So he brought up the point of needing to kind of expunge these former convictions. And he forced Vice President Biden to go on the defensive and and say that, actually, I'm not for uh criminalizing this anymore we should you know absolve these past uh, convictions but i thought he did well in terms of uh, presenting himself at a, at a time where his campaign which at times looked like it was starting to he was starting to gain some momentum i thought he did a good job of kind of uh representing himself last night and you mentioned the whole kind of the front 
friendliness that he uh, had raised up in a prior campaign. He wasn't the only one last night. Andrew Yang tweeted out before the debate, or maybe during the debate, he just he tweeted, I miss Beto, um, because Beto O'Rourke dropped out of the race, and in previous debates, Yang and Beto were always next to each other. Well, and, and Beto wasn't the only one that was missing last night. This was the first one that, that we still had 10 candidates on the stage, but like we said, it was only one night. There were quite a few candidates that, that didn't meet the, the um, requirements or had already dropped out at this point. Um, also missing on the stage were Julian Castro and John Delaney, who is still running, FYI. For some reason. <laughs> um, but I, I think that it was, you know, kind of as expected uh, performances from the general front runners, center of the stage individuals. Uh, kind of on the, the outskirts, the ones, for, their lecterns are further away from the center, you know, Cory Booker and... Um, I thought that Andrew Yang had quite a few good moments. I think it was the most amount of time that Tom Steyer spoke um, when he talked about climate change. It almost for a moment kind of seemed like he was surprised that he was still talking. Um, and, and I mean, you know, he he brought up climate change several times, which was something that had been missing from previous debates and, and had been a criticism. Um, I definitely thought that um, Kamala Harris had a, a important exchange with um, Senator Amy Klobuchar where they got into the nitty-gritty differences of their paid family leave plans. Um, Senator Klobuchar said that three months paid family leave would be good. Uh, Klobuchar, uh, I'm sorry, Kamala Harris said six months, which would be double. But then she also talked about how um, the dynamics of families have changed in that uh, families are having children later in their lives and that as a result, women often are taking care of their small children and their elderly parents at the same time now um, and that the the burden of that care falls unfairly on women for the vast majority of it and therefore that's why she was going for a longer paid family leave. And I really think that those like really clear distinctions in domestic policy is is something that we didn't necessarily get into as much in the previous debates, just frankly because there was so much to talk to with so many people. Right. I, I agree with that. And I think that in those moments, uh, Senator Klobuchar was kind of throwing shade at other certain candidates because when she was asked about this, she goes, I picked three months and I laid out how I was going to pay for it. I'm not going to give you a car with a bumper sticker and say, here, the car is free. Right. I am going to detail how to pay for it. And that's something that Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren have sort of come under criticism for, even though if you look back at their uh, track record, they have said how they plan on paying for their stuff, too. Uh, you've mentioned already a couple of topics, uh, a couple issues. Was there any... Um, particular issue that the moderators really pressed the candidates on i think medicare well yes medicare for all was an interesting uh point especially because there's a sort of divide uh in the party where there are candidates further to the left that want medicare for all and they want it as soon as possible bernie sanders was talking about in the very first week of his presidency they will have a bill out there um Elizabeth Warren has given a timeline of, I believe, three years into her presidency, presidency that Medicare for all will be implemented. But uh, Mayor Buttigieg and Senator Klobuchar kind of, at least from they were the ones last night that said, OK, we're not going to do Medicare for all. We're going to do Medicare for all those who want it. 
we're not going to force okay. millions of Americans to give up their private insurers uh, for, you know, if they don't want to. I also thought it was interesting. Uh, another key divide in, in, in the between some of these candidates were uh, along the discussion of free education. While most of the, if not all, I believe everybody on stage last night was a proponent for reducing uh, education costs for higher education, and a lot of them are for totally free uh, higher education. Amy Klobuchar made a point saying, oh, I don't want to send rich kids to college, talking about because of in the large talking point in the Democratic Party is taxing the ultra-rich to pay for things for the average Americans, middle class, lower mm-hmm. class Americans. And uh, she said, oh, we don't need to send rich kids to school for free. And it was something where nobody kind of challenged her on it. But I think the, the belief is, well, if if a billionaire is being taxed to send dozens of kids to school, what's one more kid, even if that kid comes from a better background? If, if more people are benefiting, right. why shouldn't this kid uh, benefit as well? It's something that didn't wasn't brought up last night, but I think in the future that'll have to – that'll – come under more of a microscope. Yeah, and I would agree with that because uh, pretty early on in the debate, there was a a heated exchange between Warren and Booker about taxes and and wealth taxes and and kind of their differences. And and Cory Booker kept, you know, they do that like split screen thing where you can see, you know, Warren answering and Cory Booker's response. And, you know, Senator Warren would would explain her plan and, and, you know, what she thinks the brackets should be and and whatever. And Cory Booker just kind of kept having this like smirky smile that very clearly was like, you can't pay for that. You know, (laughs) like it like that he thought it was really unrealistic. And I think, um, you know, candidates are, are finding that that is a slightly more effective tactic to go after Warren's, you know, lists of plans on plans on plans on plans, where where they say, okay, that's great, you have a plan, but where are the receipts? We want to see how you pay for this. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I thought kind of took center stage last night was there were there were quite a lot of questions, particularly in the second half of the debate, about some foreign policy. I don't necessarily know how engaging it was. I mean, like I said, there's quite um quite a few similarities most democrats are going to agree at least in broad brush strokes on what foreign policy um should be especially in in comparison to you know current administration and and perhaps deviation from you know what would be the norm for the country but i also am saying that in the midst of week two of the public impeachment hearings (laughs) um and i just it's possible that you know it didn't land quite as well I mean, just frankly, because of burnout of the American public of talking about foreign relations at the moment. I'm not saying that it's not valid to talk about. Um, it just kind of felt like a lot. <laughs> well, I, I don't necessarily uh, disagree with you, but I do think that some of the distinctions between the candidates were were important to take away from. Sure. Last night, uh, Joe Biden made a point of saying, I learned two things from I've learned two things from these impeachment hearings. One, Donald Trump does not want to run against me, and two, Vladimir Putin does not want to be, does not want me to be president. And so, I think that being able to tout that for him is 
it's that's, a bonus yeah, for him. Yeah, that's, that's true. But and, he and his family are, are also wrapped in these impeachment hearings much greater than any other candidate. Right, is. right. And for some of these other candidates that maybe have more experience dealing with foreign policy matters versus domestic plans. For example, I remember distinctly last night, Mayor Buttigieg again, uh, we've talked about him a lot, I think a lot more than we have in previous podcasts. And that's a reflection of where he's polling right now in certain places. But one thing that he was criticized for is, yes, you were in the army and you served the country, which he was, you know, which, which is obviously great. But it, it's one thing to serve the country in, in that way than to be in the situation room or to be, you know, in negotiations with a with another foreign leader. Uh, so I, I think that I think that there were definitely positives to take away from the debate about the foreign policy. Be, I think that being able to kind of take away each candidate's kind of style and what their plans are for uh, is something that can be beneficial. It was interesting. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard kind of came under attack because uh, she had met with uh, Bashar al uh, Assad. Assad Bashar al Assad. Uh, I think I messed that up, but. It's something where she said, oh, well, I have the courage to meet with any foreign leaders. But at the same time, Kamala Harris is saying, I wouldn't have uh, sold out the country for a photo op with Kim Jong-un uh, like President Trump. So it, it's something where you can kind of grasp the styles of these different candidates. So I think that was something positive to take away. Yeah, and, and Kamala Harris really went hard after Tulsi Gabbard pretty early on. She said, um, gosh, I can't I can't remember exactly what, what question this was in response to, but Kamala said – you know, well, while we were all trying to, you know, work with President Obama and, and make, you know, strides in the country, Tulsi Gabbard was on Fox News criticizing the Obama administration for four years. And everybody just kind of, I mean, it was strong. It was a it, strong moment. It, it was something that was definitely something that, uh, excuse me, that the, the Kamala campaign uh, and the Tulsi campaign, these sort of... On the outside looking in at this point, I think Kamala went after Tulsi for a distinct reason because Tulsi Gabbard has gone on. It even recently was on Tucker Carlson tonight. I don't think you'll see any of these other candidates going on that show because of the way certain media outlets are, are viewed now. Um, but it was something that Tulsi shot back and said, oh, you parade in lies. It, it, was, it was a very uh, kind of poignant moment. I think that those types of things kind of take away from the progress that these debates can make in terms of learning about policy and foreign and domestic. But it was, it was something I think that was interesting. She, cause Kamala Harris went everything short of just calling Tulsi a Russian operative. Yeah. I mean, she, she was pretty much like, you're not really a Democrat. And I was like, well, shoot. <laughs> um, but that, that has been a, com uh, uh, a criticism of Tulsi Gabbard, definitely online. Um, so, uh, you know, she's not polling very high, um, in, in any recent polls, but you know, she is, is pretty steadfast in, in sticking in there. I don't really see her dropping out before Iowa. Um, although things may change, I don't know what her funding situation is at at the moment. Um, I did want to mention too, I, I know that it was kind of briefly mentioned in terms of, um, housing inequality and Tom Steyer actually had a pretty strong moment on, um, you know, inequitable housing policies and, um, some other candidates talked about, you know, how, um, black Americans were really cut out of, 
um, building wealth for their families in, in that regard. And um, even though the the candidate pool is starting to shrink somewhat, <laughs> or at least on uh, on the debate stages, uh, there's still quite a bit of diversity on that stage. Um, we have multiple candidates of color. We have multiple women. We have a wide range of ages. Um, and we also, we have LGBTQ members and we also have non-Christian members on that stage. I learned Tulsi Gabbard is a Hindu, which I did not know until last night. I didn't know that right. until you just said it. <laughs> I know. Um, so it's, it's interesting and I am kind of curious to see, you know, how that plays out in future polling. Um, and, and in their answers to those questions about, you know, inequalities, particularly in domestic, uh, issues. Yes, that's a, that's a good point because issues like redlining and gentrification were brought up. And right. The one of the one of the things the Democratic Party or the the Democratic Party will try to do, I think, if they are able to take back the White House or maybe if they take the Senate and gain a majority in Congress, I think housing uh, reform is something that they will strive for. It's too bad we didn't have the former housing secretary on there to I talk know, about yes. that too. <laughs> So uh, I think we will wrap this up before we uh, sign off. I wanted to get your take on the winners and losers from last night. Who made the biggest impression? Who made? Who do you think made the biggest leap in the public's mind? And then uh, who do you think is going to be uh, maybe took a step back or will be eventually saying, uh, I'm going to withdraw from withdraw I, my nomination? Yeah, I think that depends – what age group you're in. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Biden is, is pulling much better with over 65s than 18 to 34s. Um, Andrew Yang is probably pulling kind of that opposite flip. Um, at this point, you know, we can kind of say that we're past a, a little bit of the just sheer name recognition portion. You know, we've been doing right. this long enough that if you're paying attention and you're going to be a primary voter, you've at least, you know, heard of, seen pictures of, you know, the candidates. I don't know that anybody necessarily bombed. Um, there weren't any moments where you went, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, um, Biden had kind of a, a little flub of. He's good for one of those. Yeah, debate. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, par for the course. Um I, I think that Andrew Yang and, and actually Tom Steyer had had some kind of stronger moments, um, especially talking about, you know, things that maybe some of the more um, uh, higher polling candidates may not be speaking about. They're, they're starting to kind of be able to steer the conversation to what suits their strengths a little bit. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the kind of center of the stage candidates, I feel like it was... You know, they were on their talking points. They handled some of the attacks. It was it was a decent night for almost everybody on the stage. You don't think anybody stood out above anybody else? If I had to give if I had to give winners and losers, I'd say the winners were probably and it's tough, but I think Cory Booker had a good night. I think that probably you can even look at someone like Tom Steyer like was able to fend for himself um, in terms of having a bad night. I think t t just the fact that 
my main takeaways for Tulsi Gabbard were the kind of negative exchanges That's she got true. in with multiple candidates. That's true. Like I can I can look at Pete Buttigieg who took a lot of attacks, but he was I thought he did a decent job of holding himself up well. Even if I don't agree with his policy, I think he had measured responses for these uh, kind of uh, attacks. And I, I think really Tulsi did an okay job, but at the same time, it just struck me as someone that was really on the defensive. I think even I think Joe Biden had a better debate than past ones, other than this weird instance where he said the only black woman senator endorses me and Kamala Harris is literally on stage right there. Um, and he, he meant to say the first he's, he's referring to Carol Braun. Um, he meant to say the first, but instead he was like, I, I said the first, I didn't say only you meant the first, Yeah, but you said the only, it was, it was, it was kind of uncomfortable, but moved past it very quickly. Um, but in terms of winners and losers, if you're asking for two, I'll throw out Cory Booker as a winner and I'll throw out Tulsi Gabbard as a okay. loser. Do you guys see uh, real quick one last question? Do you guys see any candidate from, uh, as Audra mentioned from like the wings of the, <laughs> Of the debate, maybe sneaking their way eventually into the center. Is that Mayor Pete? Do you think he has the best opportunity? To- but I don't think he's on the wings anymore. I think, he's- I think he's firmly entrenched. Yeah, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's weird. We, we've talked about it because Iowa, as Audra mentioned, is kind of the jumping off point. If you can make it to Iowa, anything can happen. If you, if you pick up a couple delegates there, right. if you do well enough to say, oh, they maybe they can appeal to another state, then you stay off. But if you don't do well in Iowa... That's kind of the death knell for your campaign if there is one. Um, it's, it seems to me that's a little unfair. I know Iowa's the first uh, caucus. I don't, Iowa's not that great of a representation of the United States as a whole. If I had to say, you know, if we were doing things, and it's not the only reason why Iowa's so important is because it's the first one. Right. Michigan would probably be a better representation of the country as a whole because it's a very diverse state. In terms of many different things, in terms of demographics, but we also have diversity in business, diversity in um, our kind of industrial sector. We have diversity in different fields like in agriculture and things like this. And I I think that Michigan – you can look at the polls for Michigan and look at it as a better kind of – I'm missing the word here, but a better barometer barometer of – how the country will vote as a whole. So even if Pete Buttigieg is doing very well in Iowa, there are not a lot of black voters in Iowa. It, right, it, it, right. It's worth being said. Right. Um, and the voting population in Iowa, I was looking at it, it, it it's a bit older than the, it, you know, you was on also. It, it, it will be interesting to, to see how yeah. this goes. I, I don't necessarily think that the candidates are unaware of the importance of, of Michigan. You know, in the, I know that you were listening to, to just an audio, um, you know, feed of the debate, but, um, in the, the commercials, um, I was watching, uh, uh, and, and they had one of those, um, you know, delegate maps where they turn right. everything blue and yep. red and, you know, talk about the electoral college map math and all that stuff. And, um, you know, Michigan and, and Wisconsin were really important in, in 2016 and they both went red. Um, and I think that, you know, Pundits, but also, you know, candidates and, and their campaigns are very aware that Michigan is going to be a battleground. Um, and and whether they put in the legwork to to sway voters and to meet voters in the state and 
you know, turn the state back to blue or if it's going to stay red, I, I think is going to depend greatly on how much attention candidates pay to the state. And, uh, you know, who else knows that is the Trump campaign. This is true. It was announced uh, today, actually, that next month, Vice President Pence will make stops in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Which are the big three, really. Right. We, we don't know where in Michigan uh, he will be. Obviously, previous Trump rallies in, in Grand Rapids have been very, very well attended. I, I've, I've been to one uh, in 2016. It was it was. Very, and I wasn't. That wasn't something that I was covering. That was something that I wanted to attend to just kind of see what was happening. Um, and that was very. That was wild. I mm-hmm. did not yeah. expect that at was all. Was that the one that he was super late to? And Ted Nugent Ted talked Nugent, about Ted Nugent, Nugent was for like going crazy. <laughs> I nearly said brazy, but I don't think it's appropriate for Ted Nugent. But he was. He was. Ted Nugent was on one that night, um, and it, it's something that they they know that they can kind of pull these raucous crowds maybe uh in michigan but it'll be up to the democrats that if they want to win the state back and i think they can because uh in it was very close 28 yeah. and it was very close to 2016 and 2018 in the statewide races the democrats swept um so it'll be something where michigan will truly be a battleground and i think for the democrats on that march 10th primary whoever wins michigan might you know take take a yeah. uh, take a sort of stranglehold on the on this race fair enough exciting time to be a journalist in michigan it is uh i think that will just about do it uh i'm gonna go pull the discography of the motor city madman for our band here <laughs> we can jam out to little ted Nugent. Uh, i i did I'll, want to mention pass. <laughs> uh, yeah that's gonna be a hard pass for me as well um i did want to mention you know we're talking about some some pretty specific nuances in policy uh among all of these candidates and the Washington Post graphics team put together a, a BuzzFeed-ish style quiz where you kind of fill in the <laughs> blanks of, you know, how you feel about healthcare and how you feel about paid family leave and how you feel about national debt. And then at the end, um, they give you a little score of which candidates agree with you X number of times on these yeah. issues. So if anybody is feeling kind of overwhelmed at this point still, <laughs> it's cool. You're not the only one. Um, so if you wanted to look that out, uh, the the quiz is called "Which of these 2020 Democrats agree with you most?" <laughs> it's not something like I tell them my favorite office character, and they tell me I should vote for like Kamala Harris. <laughs> yeah, if only. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, that uh, any final thoughts before we go dig up Ted Nugent here on Amazon Music? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, right. th- I think I think we we hit most of the talking points. I'll just say I agree with Otter. It's exciting. It's 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 nerve wracking, but it's exciting. Um, so if you haven't paid attention yet, don't feel bad. But I, I, <laughs> it's I time think, to start getting in the weeds I, I a little think, bit. Yeah, though. as as we hit this holiday, you know, season, I, I think that you know next month when, when our next debates are going on, I'm not sure of the day, but if you if you're wrapped up on, around the fireplace, enjoying some hot cocoa, it might not be a bad idea <laughs> to uh, tune in to the next round of debates. <laughs> Thank you, Audra. Thank you, Arpan. Thank you all for joining us. We will see you next time on From the Newsroom.